listening. We don't have that. So this is like a real live sermon bumper where it's just Joey and me transitioning into this time and they are off and I am here and there's no video. And so welcome to Calvary Church. We're glad that you guys are here. Uh, Thanks for carving out time to be with us this morning. My name is Peter. Um, It's just awesome to be together, to spend a few minutes singing songs, uh, being in community, being his body. A couple of quick housekeeping things, and then we will move into it. But I want to make you aware of a couple of um, pieces of paper. And the first one is we as a church have the opportunity to partner with a ton of different people trying to serve others and love others both locally in this community and around the world, and we want to do a uh, good job and keep thinking of ways to meaningfully let you know about who some of these people are. And so um, we don't want it just to be once a year when we bring folks in for a weekend. We want it to be throughout the year. What's going on? Who are we partnering with? And so we have something called these partner narratives, and our missions team does an amazing job creating these. You can grab them uh, underneath the map in the coffee area. And it just gives you a quick little brochure, a quick little snapshot about what's going on with some of our partners. And so this one that's new is a group of people named John and Valerie Brown. About five years ago, uh, these folks, man, they are in uh, an indigenous village working with uh, Brazilian Indians. And they're in the middle of the Amazon jungle. And so when they were here to visit with us a few years ago, John brought up like his awesome uh, blowgun. You might remember that. The, the, the trial lawyer, litigator in me thought, this is so much liability, I can't even watch. But spears and, and darts were flying across the stage. I have gone and taken two with two different groups of you. Uh, some of our teams have gone to partner with these guys, and I had the amazing, literally, probably once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to fly in this little Cessna into this village in the middle of the Amazon. And on the way, the pilots explained to us, I think, like I shared, like, okay, so if this thing crashes, I'm either going to land on the top of the trees or try to find a river. And I'm like, this is so encouraging to me right now. (laughs) But they are serving as all of our people are, right? Each of our partners have a different story and a different calling, but the Browns uh, have a unique one. Um, And I would invite you to read this and check it out. There's a lot going on in Brazil, and especially in the Amazon. There's gold miners who are getting into armed skirmishes with the Brazilian army, and that is is trickling into the village um, with armed skirmishes and just um, really interesting things that not many missionaries are still facing today that the Browns are. So I'd encourage you to pick this up and, and take an opportunity to see what God's doing through them and how we can support them. Second piece of paper that I would call your attention to is this that is on our website. There was an email sent about it. Um, It'll be on our app. It is probably behind the screen in a minute. It is this uh, one-page document of all the things going on at Calvary Church in this Christmas season. And so we're going to have some Christmas Eve services. We're going to have sometimes where it's one service, sometimes where it's not, right? Closer to Christmas, we're going to come together in one service, and this will give you all the information about when is their childcare, when is their nursery, what time should I be there, what time should I not. All, everything that you ever wanted to know about Christmas at Calvary. Everything that keeps you up late at night. I know for hours, you are just up late at night wondering to yourself, man, what time is that December 12th service at Calvary Church? You do not need to fret anymore because this is the information. Um, And for those of us who are watching right now online, If you've not yet had a chance to make it back, man, Christmas could be an amazing time for you to come back and and be with us in person. So you can grab this or watch our website for that. And one date that is not on there, but I'll make you aware of, um, is next Sunday, next Sunday, December 12th at uh, 
6 o'clock, we have an opportunity to kind of celebrate what God has done in our church um, and together as a group of people. And we're going to have our annual meeting, right? It's a time that we celebrate financially what he's done for us um, through giving and kind of the way we want to steward his faithfulness moving into the next year. We have a chance to think about that and talk about that. Um, It's a time where a bunch of you have signed up to serve on teams and lead on teams and be involved, and we're just grateful for that, and we can celebrate you and come together. So we'll be talking about a little bit about what our dreams are for the money next year, and people, and you'll get to, as if you're a member, approve uh, the folks that the elders are putting together and putting forward to you on some of these piece of information in the budget of the group. So we'd love to invite you to that. Um, 45 minutes or an hour, but great chance. If you're not a member, come and, and find out what's going on. So <clears throat> that is the housekeeping announcements. Lots of paper for you to grab to doodle on if you get bored in the sermon. And before you get bored leading up to the sermon, I am going to pray. And then we'll talk about what God has for us. Father, um, we are grateful for the opportunity to sing songs together, and we're grateful once again for the opportunity to uh, come and open up your word. And I pray that as we're entering into a season where we're thinking about Jesus and the amazing gift and, and who he was and what he did for us, that your spirit will really take these truths and impress them upon us. May what we think about and how we think about Jesus um, together on our Sundays and even personally in our own lives this season be honoring to him and You know what you have for us this morning, Father, and from the words and the stories that people faced a long time ago, it has relevance, and who you are and how you work still has import today. So, Father, remove distractions, help us to clearly hear the purposes of the Holy Spirit, and to leave here knowing more about the Bible, but then also knowing what you would have us do and act in response to that. And we pray this and uh, want Jesus to be honored, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Well... I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a week and a half or so ago, around our table. It's a much smaller group cluster on our table because we got three in college now. But my wife and uh, Caroline and myself were there, and Casey asked us, like, hey, what is, like, what is one tradition you guys are looking forward to doing as a family, right? We're all back together. And so the three of us shared that. And my tradition that I shared that I am excited about doing as family is for years, since the kids have been little, little babies to now they're like, a lot of adult type kids. We have gotten into our Ford excursion. We have done research leading up to that about the best Christmas light displays in whatever community in which we live. We have gotten hot chocolate. We have turned on Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas. What a sacred religious song, right? And we have piled into that car with our hot chocolate with Mariah Carey screaming on the thing. And we go around and we look at Christmas lights, right? Christmas lights are kind of, man, this tradition that I look forward to doing that <clears throat> as a family. We, we put up Christmas lights on our tree earlier this week. Now, let me just tell you something. This is off the script. It is not on my iPad, but it is for free because I need you to help me figure this out. Last Christmas, 340, 50 days ago, whatever, we took, there were lights on our Christmas tree. They were all lit, they were all, and I, yeah, they were all working, illuminating. We took all of those Christmas lights that were illuminating properly off of our tree. We very carefully wrapped them up and put them in a plastic bucket from Target. We laid them there. We sealed the lid. We put it in my basement under four or five stacks of other buckets. The, earlier this week, we pulled that bucket of Christmas lights that 357 days ago were all working. And we went to go put those Christmas lights on the tree, and you already know what happened. 
because it has happened to you. We pulled out of all, we pulled out, there's, I don't know how many in there, 10, 12, whatever. We pulled out four strands that are not working. I do not understand this. What has happened in 365 days? I think that there actually is a Grinch. I think that there is a Grinch who crawled into my basement, who got into my Christmas boxes and changed the lights. Like, how does that happen? If any of you are physicists, you can email me and explain to me after the service why this happens. But lights are kind of part of the story. If you, I grabbed just a couple of pictures of lights. If you, some things you might see, right? If you go around town or go around different places, you, we want to see nice light displays. Here, just, here's a few light displays that don't quite make it up to par, right? Here's the first one. I mean, I'm thinking like, I love how it takes a while. What is it with this corner? It always starts here. They get it, and it literally is like the wave that makes it swell. I'm like, if you're going to put a word on your roof, you know, you make it the right word. I'm like, am I going to go there and get some green giant peas and like mashed potatoes? What's the deal? There's another little um, grouping of words that don't quite work out the right way. Like, I'm just like, just kind of. Flip it. But there are these times in life when you see a Christmas display, and you already know you can't put it up yet because i got to build it up, right? You know there's times when you see a Christmas display, and it is amazing. These people have put effort into it. They are, it's like, you know, the, the Chevy Chase thing. You have seen the Christmas displays where they have mortgaged their house 42 times to buy the Christmas lights. There are lights everywhere. Let, let me show you an example of this. You know that about an hour before that, there was a fight in this house. You know that there was one person in this house, and I, you know, I'm just going to use a voice. I'm not saying which J, I don't know. But somebody's just like, we really need to go put up some Christmas lights. And they're like, no, we don't. And they're like, yes, we need to put up Christmas lights. No, we don't. Yes, we do. Okay, fine. You know that this display I put up is the result of two people fighting about whether they wanted to put up Christmas lights or not. Christmas season... It's a time where in our own traditions, in our own stories, right, light is part of that. Probably a bunch of you have lights around your house, or maybe you're like my family, you jump in the car and you go look at lights. And it's interesting when you think about the prophecies, right, the the things that were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth, there is this same theme woven through those things, this theme of light and darkness. Here's a verse out of a prophet named Isaiah written, Again, hundreds of years before Jesus, it talks about, this is prophesying, this is looking ahead to what will be like when Jesus comes to earth as a baby, when he's incarnated, right, when he takes on human flesh. It talks about the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them has the light shone. Looking ahead to Jesus, being born, incarnated, coming to where we are, the prophet, through the inspiration, is saying, man, that's going to be a moment of light, Right? Jesus, baby Jesus, is often referred to the light of the world. Light is going to come into the darkness. <clears throat> and amazingly, right, the prophecy is true. Because in this moment, for these people who were living in the time when Jesus was born, in the time when the light came into the world, it was a moment, it was a season where they were in darkness. I think sometimes what some of us have the habit of doing, whether... You know, you believe in Jesus or you don't. Or sometimes what we do is we read these stories of people in the Bible and we kind of make them like, <clears throat> ah, they're pretend people, right? Like they're Bible people. They're super here. They're, we make these glossy kind of cut out caricature people. And what we forget is, no, these 
people were just like you and just like me. And the daily pressures you face, the great things that you celebrate, the things that you worry about, right? Spraining your ankle, having things that don't work, right? Unexpected. This is the story of these people. And for the people who were living in the culture of the time that the true historical Christmas events occurred, they were facing darkness. They were kind of three different types of darkness that they were facing the moment. The first was just spiritual darkness. For many of the Jews at this time who were living at the time that Jesus was born spiritually, it was, they were flatlined. They were apathetic. <clears throat> they didn't have a passionate, vibrant chasing after God. They were defined more by sin and apathy than by worship and submission. If they were showing up at anything religious, they were just going into the motions, putting in the time, darkness in their hearts. They looked around, and perhaps part of the reason that that had been the path they chosen is because God just seemed absent. They didn't see him working. They didn't see him do anything. It had been 400 years since he had last showed up on the scene, and for 400 years, generation after generation, nothing new had come, nothing had happened, status quo, and they reached a point where they said, man, maybe we'll go through the motions, but, but we're not, our hearts aren't in this chasing after God thing. Not only was there spiritual darkness, there was political darkness. In this time of this historical story, the Jews were under Roman rule. There was a dude who was kind of overseeing the region that the Christmas story takes place in. His name was Herod. And Herod was this really interesting guy. We're actually going to spend a week <clears throat> thinking just about him coming up. But, but and sometimes Herod would do these incredibly kind, generous, benevolent things for the Jewish people. He'd help them out. But then the very next day, he would be this tyrant. And he would be persecuting them and, and making life harder for them. And it's like, man, we don't know which way the wind's going to blow. They were in this political moment where it was dark because it was a seesaw of, is this guy going to do something nice for us? Or is this guy going to put more taxes on us and more burdens on us and more restrictions on us? And not only that, but in addition to the uh, uh, spiritual darkness and the political darkness, even for the most faithful characters and people who were involved in the Christmas story, there was personal darkness. There was personal darkness. Because for so many of the characters in the Christmas story, the story of their life leading up to this, or even the moment of the story and the events of the story, it caused curveballs, it brought fears, it was rife with anxiety, and it was not an easy situation in which they found themselves walking and navigating through. I think what it's important for us to understand is the prophecy was there's going to be a moment of darkness that people are going to be in. And the setting of the Christmas story is not on the set of some sweet Netflix holiday movie. I know there's been a lot of holiday movies filmed from Netflix in Connecticut, right, apparently. And, and, and you know, holiday movies, Netflix, Hallmark, they're like fighting it. I don't know if you're watching this, but it's like, man, it's a sparring match about who can have the cheesiest, stupid Christmas movie, right? Is it going to be Netflix or Hallmark? But in either of those movies, the Christmas story is not on those sets. The, the Christmas story is not some pristine Christmas village in the mountains, with gingerbread houses, with smoke coming out of the fireplace, and you open up the house, and there's a Christmas tree with candy canes, with some nice grandmotherly figure wearing flannel who brings you out freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. That's not their experience. 
It was the experience of a lot of hardships, a lot of struggles, a lot of unknowns, a lot of scraping by just to pay the bills and make life work and darkness. And maybe for some of you, and I'm going to say this and then there's a caveat, maybe for some of you today, that's what you're feeling. Your house looks awesome. Your tree is joyful. You've sent out Christmas cards that have the word hope all over it, but maybe today you're sitting here and you're just facing some discouragement. You just feel like you're flying through the clouds and you don't really know why. Maybe some of you are processing a curveball that life has thrown you. Maybe you're sitting here and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you look down the road and you have some just unknowns about the future, just concerns. You want to be able to control what happens next year and the next 10 years and you don't feel like you have any control and you don't know what's coming up and it's challenging. Or maybe you can't put your finger on it, but things just seem heavy right now. In your story, in your life, you don't necessarily know why, but it just seems hard for you right now. And if that's where you are, I want to put this disclaimer, right? I don't want you to be like, oh my gosh, that's exactly where I am. I'm so glad I came to church today. You're just going to depress me even more, right? I don't want you to be like, yup, everything around me is bleak. Thanks for reminding me, Peter. This Christmas story is not intended in our next few weeks together. It's not intended just to keep leaping on you and, and piling on you more discouragement or more despair. But here's what it's supposed to do. The, many of the characters that we're going to face, including the person we're going to face today, they were walking that road that you might be walking. They were facing that discouragement you might be facing. They had some of the fears that may be linked with what you're worried about or your story's gone a certain way. But even with that going on from the Christmas story and from what happens and from the things they saw, they were able to have hope and peace and joy. And so my hope for all of us through this next series we're kicking off today is this, that if you have discouragement, and even if you have discouragement, that amidst that discouragement from what we see in the text together over these weeks, you will be able to have some more handles to cling to, to give you hope, and to give you joy, and to give you peace. Because it did it for the characters in the story who were facing that, and God's truth and God's actions and God's reality can do that for us today. And so we do kick off this four-week series. It is entitled, Do You See What I See? I'm just warning you, <clears throat> I don't know when it's going to be, but one of these days I'm going to say that title and it will be followed by the most melodious bellowing of me singing that one line that you have ever heard. It will be a Christmas miracle and you should be here because it will be a delight. Do you see what I see? See, what we're going to do is we're going to see the insights, the angles, the viewpoint of different characters in the Christmas story. What, what was their perspective on the story? What did they see, right? What are the insights that they bring to it and take from it? And then what does that have to do for us today? We're going to begin the story where one of the biographers of Jesus begins the story. There's four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each biographer writes uh, his biography of Jesus for a different reason to a different audience. And we're going to be in the uh, Luke today. We're going to be in the biography of Jesus written by a guy named Luke. And Luke does not begin the story, the Christmas story, in a stable in Bethlehem <clears throat> with little cows and sheep and baby Jesus. Luke begins his recitation of the Christmas story outside of Bethlehem. Um, we're, we're probably about seven or so miles outside of Bethlehem. We are in the house and the workplace of some senior citizens. 
Luke doesn't begin in a stable. Luke begins about seven miles or so away from the stable in the house and at the job site of a couple of senior citizens. Here's a map to kind of get us situated in where we are. Here's Jerusalem, and then outside of Jerusalem, there's this area that's referred to as the hill country of Judea. That's where these senior citizens live, and one of the senior citizens works in Jerusalem, and this is where Luke begins the Christmas story. Bethlehem is contained in this hill country, but if church historians and church scholars are correct, Bethlehem is about seven miles away from where church tradition, not the Bible, but church tradition say that these events that we're about to study take place. Where we're about to start today, church tradition will tell us it takes place in a town called Ain Kerem. Or Ein Kerem. Here's some pictures of that town in the hill country of Judea where scholars think that these events took place involving these two senior citizens. So we're situated here. Jesus has not been born. And we're going to track kind of the story of an elderly lady. And what do we learn about this lady? So verse 5, we pick up the story. It's situated there, and it tells us this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. We're we're focusing on this lady, Elizabeth. Interesting, her name in this culture for these people groups, names were really important, And, and her name, depending on how you translate it, either means, my God is the one by whom I swear, or my God is my fortune. Her name implies that she was this lady of hope who was trusting in God. We see that she's married to a priest, right? This dude named Zechariah. Not only is Elizabeth married to a priest, but Elizabeth comes from this family tree of priests. The first priest in the Old Testament was this guy named Aaron, and the priestly line went through him. Elizabeth was part of that family tree. Her daddy was a priest. Her brother's probably a priest. Her grandpappy was probably a priest, even though she probably didn't call him grandpappy because she ain't in like Pelham. South Carolina, um, and she's married to a priest. It's like an Irish cop family. Everywhere you look, there's cops for Elizabeth. Everywhere you look, there's priests. And when we learn something about Elizabeth, if we skip over one verse and we jump right to verse 7, it says this, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. This, for Elizabeth, was huge. Infertility, being unable to have a child, it was a source that we know was a, man, great discouragement and sadness. And I know today, probably for some of you either listening online or in our services today, I know that for many people in churches today, issues of infertility, not able to have kids, the timing of that, miscarriages, it's a huge Uh, path to navigate that's filled with all sorts of emotions and hardship. Elizabeth would have had all of those emotions, and in this culture, there would have been something else that Elizabeth had to bear that many folks who are bearing this burden that's heavy enough don't have to bear in our culture, but in Elizabeth's culture, what the people thought was that if you were a lady who didn't have a kid and you were married, that the reason you didn't have a kid, they wrongly thought, was because there was sin in your life. They thought that your inability to have a child was because God was judging you and he was punishing you. And so Elizabeth would have had these dreams and hopes and desires for a kid that hadn't come to fulfillment. 
And in addition to that, Elizabeth would have walked into a room for many years of her life, and when she walked in, people would start to whisper about her. And when she walked out, people would have started to whisper about it. There would be unfair accusations, unfair thoughts, a stigma that she would have carried in addition to the pain and the discouragement. We know that because later on, here's a spoiler alert, she is going to become pregnant. And when she comes pregnant, she's going to refer to how God has now removed the reproach that I felt, removes the shame, removes the judgment, removes all these people saying things about me that aren't true and aren't fair and I didn't do anything wrong. And this is just part of life. Not only would have Elizabeth carried all that, but we know that this is something that she and her husband prayed for and prayed for and prayed for and prayed for. And despite all those prayers for all those years, God kept saying, nope, nope, nope. When she was first married, she would just expect it, that by this time in her life, she would have had kids, she would have had grandkids. That was the dream. That was the plan. That was the path that wasn't coming to play. And in addition to all of those feelings, another interesting thing about kids in this culture is that these kids would have been Elizabeth's retirement plan. In this culture, you don't have 401Ks, you don't have Roth IRAs, you have kids. And your kids are your retirement plan. And when you're old, they're the ones who take care of you and you live with them and they take you, right? They're the good, that's my retirement plan. I don't, so man... Let's go, kids. Come on. Get out there to keep daddy happy. Um, so Elizabeth would have been laid out there, and she would have been, man, I, she looked ahead, and she's like, the way that I thought I was going to be taken care of in this last sunset season of my life, there's no resources. Elizabeth had all of these emotions that were weighing down upon her, and darkness, and challenges, and fears, and shattered dreams. Can any of you relate to that? Can anybody relate? Has there been something that you have prayed for and prayed for and prayed for and prayed for? And God has kept saying, you haven't seen it happen, which essentially is for right now, nope. Nope. No. Maybe you had a plan for what your life would look like right now. And you thought it would look a certain way. And this morning when you woke up, it didn't look that way. Maybe you have concerns about the future. Maybe it's like Elizabeth's. Maybe it was, it's financial. It's just unknowns. It's, your, it's just, I don't know how I'm going to figure all of this out. Maybe you can relate to Elizabeth because for some reason in your story, people are unfairly thinking things about you. Like there is this rumor that's gotten out there, or these, these, these thoughts that people have about you that's not warranted because you did not act that way, or that is not what you did or your heart, but yet people are making judgments about you. You're like, man, I don't, what is even going on? How did Elizabeth respond in the darkness of those challenges of decades of not having life go the way that she wanted? How did it cause her to act? Well, we see that in verse 6 where it says this, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that Elizabeth was like pure and never sinned, but what this means is Elizabeth was a woman who said, look, I'm in this moment of my life that hasn't worked out the way I wanted. God hasn't been given. I have fears. I have discouragement. I have unknowns. But you know what? I'm going to keep trusting, and I'm going to keep obeying, and I'm going to keep worshiping, 
and I'm going to put one foot in front of another foot in front of another foot, and I'm going to keep chasing after God. Elizabeth did not allow her disappointment to lead to disobedience. She didn't allow her brokenness to lead to bitterness. That's the path Elizabeth didn't allow her disappointment to lead to disobedience, didn't allow her brokenness to lead to bitterness. Instead, she said, I'm going to trust and obey. And in our story, when we go through, whether you have, whether you will, whether you are, when that thing comes into your life that causes some sort of darkness or some sort of unknowns, and when that first wave of it hits, right, we, we get into this box where they're, they're, that initial phase of all of these emotions, we're processing it, we're reacting to it, we're angry about it, we're scared about it, we become hopeless about it, there's despair, there's depression, we're just trying to figure out what do I do next, we don't understand why, it's not fair, there is this box of an initial phase, and, and sometimes that box lasts for a few hours, and sometimes that box lasts for a few months, and sometimes when that thing comes, it causes you discouragement that is worse than just a few Christmas lights that magically don't work anymore. Sometimes that initial box can last a years. But at some point, we all have to, at some point, Elizabeth and me and you and we, at some point, we all have to emerge from that box of the initial phase of processing. And the question is, what comes after that? Right After we're in that box and we're to all those raw emotions, whether it's for a day, whether it's for a month, whether it's for a year, we do have to take a step out of that. And the question is, what type of path are we going to take a step down? That's the issue Elizabeth had. That's the issue Elizabeth faced. And Elizabeth had to ask herself, okay, I'm dealing with this, but am I going to move out of it? And am I going to move towards bitterness and disappointment? Or am I going to move towards trust and obedience? Am I going to move out of this box of the initial phase, and am I going to move to bitterness and disobedience, or am I going to move to trust and obedience? The interesting thing for you and me is that in our lives, when we're processing pain and grief and curveballs and unknowns, we're, we're going to veer between those. There's going to be moments when you're like, okay, I've processed it, I'm going to obey, I'm going to trust, I'm going to be faithful, and there will be days and there will be moments when you will go over towards the bitterness, not fair, pendulum, but, but, but at some point you're going to have to move more on one path than the other path. We lived in Texas for a while. I don't know if anybody's ever lived in Texas, the Lone Star State. Huh. I kind of think Texas and Virginia should have a big fight because they both think they're the best. I'm like, whatever, right? But we lived in Texas. Texas, we lived outside of Dallas in a suburb of Dallas. The unique thing about the whole, uh, most of the Dallas region when we were there, it's, it's something I've never seen before. Uh, every backyard is fenced, usually with a wooden fence. And behind the fence in your backyard, there's an alley. So it is these neighborhoods of fenced backyards all boxed up against each other with these alleyways running behind it. At the time that we lived in Garland, Texas, we had a dog named Duncan. Duncan was a golden retriever named after Tim Duncan of Wake Forest basketball fame. 
We've already talked in my life about our dog. We've already had uh, our previous dog named Tebow, who was named after Tim Tebow of the University of Florida. Football fame, right? But let's think about Duncan. Duncan, what the deal with Duncan is, in this fenced backyard, we lived there for several years, and he would just walk the perimeter of the fence. Okay? Walk the perimeter of the fence. Poor little dog. Right? But what would happen after about a year of walking that, there was this dirt path all along that perimeter, no more grass, because that is the path that he had chosen to walk, and he had put a rut in the ground, because that's where he went day after day, step after step. Would he run across the grass in other ways? Of course. But the pattern, the pathway, the walking that he went was in that way, and it put a rut in the ground of where he had been. The question is, For you and me, when we're like Elizabeth and we face life that's hard, which pathway, which choice, which rut are we going to walk down? Here's the first thing we can see from Elizabeth's story. This first challenge is this. Do not allow brokenness to get you stuck in bitterness, and do not allow discouragement to lead to disobedience. When you come out of that box of processing, You are going to choose a path. Trust and obedience, bitterness and disobedience. What rut are you going to put in the grass and the pathway of your life? Now, let's just be honest. It's super easy to say that. Okay, great. I'll fill in my app with that. I'll write it down. I'll take a picture of it. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, I get it, Peter. But, like, you got to give me a little more than just a nice little pithy sentence on the screen to help me do that. And what is a tool for you and for me that is essential to help us avoid these things that we shouldn't fall into, the rut we shouldn't be, a tool that is helpful to you and me to avoid the things we should avoid and the path we should avoid and to move more towards trust and obedience is, is our view of God, our view of God. Our view of God about his character, about his trustworthiness, and about his goodness. And those are the handles that we hold on to, that allow us, that are the tool that we use, that even when our circumstances are not good, because of the goodness of God, we say, God, I'm not going to allow it to move me towards disobedience and obedience. I'm going to allow me to make one more step because I know who you are, and I don't feel that's who you are, but I'm going to grab onto that, and I'm going to take another step of trusting and obeying because of my view of you. We're going to go, well... Well, well, I've just ruined this, but who cares? We're probably going to go bowling this Christmas as a family. We have to tell my older kids now not to watch this sermon, okay? Caroline, close your ears. We're probably going to go bowling as a family this Christmas, right? And I don't know if you've ever been bowling. Anybody here ever bowled? Okay, good. What a group of athletes we have here at Calvary Church. Here's the deal with bowling, right? If you've never been bowled, you take the ball, you do the thing, and you roll it down the alley. There are on either sides of the alleys these gutters. And if the ball gets in that alley, it then goes clunk, and it goes and it travels down this gutter, and it ain't getting back on the place where it should be. It's not what you want to end up in the gutter. But if you have little kids or grandkids or if you're a teenager who's got like a 102-year-old grandma who's going to bowl, you can cheat and you can put up those gutter guards. 
Have you ever seen the bowling bumpers, right? They just like, whoop. And here's what happens then. You can roll that ball anywhere you want. But man, when the ball starts to veer off the course where it's supposed to go, it bounces. If it starts to go towards the gutter where it will get trapped and not able to get out of, it hits that gutter guard and it bounces back to the middle lane. Starts to get a little off track, hits the gutter guard, bounces back to the middle lane. Your view of God is the gutter guard to keep the trajectory of your life ending up in the gutter of bitterness and disobedience and moments of darkness that your life and your heart and your mind, even not necessarily what you feel, but will bounce off of that to keep you moving towards trust and obedience. Your view of God. We will either allow our view of God to shape our response to the circumstances, or we will allow our circumstances to shape our view of God. If you are not going through a hard time right now, then right now is the time for you to press into who you think God is. Right now is the time for you to do everything you can to build the strongest foundation you can about what is God like, what does the goodness of God mean, what does the sovereignty of God mean, can I trust God? Ask those questions in the light because you're going to want to question them in the dark. And you got to build that foundation today so that in that moment when the curveball comes, you can just cling to it. I'm just going to cling to it. There is a we're going to move on. We could spend months talking about this. But if some of you are kind of, this is the part where you're like, man, I want to know more about that. I want to grow on that. Let me recommend a resource to you. This is a resource that um, some friends here recommended to me. And it's a book called Even If by a dude named Mitchell Lee. All I know, this is do you know how you know when you've been a pastor too long? You have to disclaim things. But I got to disclaim it. All I know about Mitchell Lee is what I've read in the book. So, man, I'm excited for you if you want to spend five weeks trying to dig up dirt on Mitchell Lee and then tell me how he's got some, like, what I don't know. I'm not endorsing everything Mitchell Lee has ever said or would think about saying. What I am doing is endorsing this book, a book called Even If, that has been meaningful to some friends and was very meaningful to me that has all sorts of markings and lines and, and just underlinings in this book because it helped me cling tighter to a view of God even if things happen in your life that you never wanted to have happen. So even if by a guy named Mitchell Lee, it's a, it's a great tool to help you get the tool of God's character and goodness to help set up the bumper guards in your life so that when hard things come, you bounce off it. Into Elizabeth's story, though, this story of darkness and discouragement for many, many years, God does eventually bring some hope. And in verses um, 8 through 23 of chapter 1, there's this amazing story about how her husband's on the job site where he works, the senior citizen, and this amazing thing happens, and he learns they're going to become pregnant, and there's this dealio, and he goes home into some, you should read it if you've never read it, go ahead and read that, right, 8 through 23. Then in some way, he goes home and communicates to Elizabeth that you're going to have a baby, we're going to be pregnant, woo, right? And how does Elizabeth respond? We see what Elizabeth does when she's filled and hears this news in verses 24 to 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. 
And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Elizabeth learns from her husband that, Whoa, baby, we're going to have a baby. Right? Then there is the, the first movement towards that, that she becomes pregnant, right? But there's no baby yet. And after that, for five months, she hides herself away. Why does she hide herself away for five months? We have no idea. We don't know. Some people are like, well, um, maybe, I mean, she's old, right? Uh, old girl's old, and if she's going to go around telling all her buddies at book club that I'm pregnant, they're going to be like, you have lost your mind. And so some people think, scholars speculate that she hid away because after five months she'll be starting to show, and then people think she's legitimate. Maybe. Some scholars and historians think she hid herself away because she wants to protect the baby. Because she has not yet, right, given birth. She wants to make sure nothing happens to the child. Maybe. I don't know. Some scholars think, and this, if we're going to speculate, this seems to have the most legs, but I don't know. What they say is, you know why Elizabeth hid herself away? Because the first thing that she did when she learned that God had made this promise to her is she worshiped. That she wrote this song or she wrote this prayer and she's worshiping God and they speculate then that for five months what she's going to say is, man, I've had like five decades of unfulfilled dreams. I'm going to carve out some time and worship and just be with God and thank him. Is that the reason why? I don't know. We don't know why because Luke chooses not to tell us why. But there are some things that we do know. When she heard this promise of what God said was going to happen, she was filled with joy and she was filled with relief. And what's really interesting about this promise is yet she hasn't yet seen it happen. There ain't no little baby running around, no diapers to change, right? She's not making little formula. There's no little trips to the Christmas tree farm to take picture of baby's first Christmas. There's no wah. What there is is there's a promise, and there's one little step towards that promise, but, but lots of things could have still happened to that, that developing child, right? She hasn't yet seen God's promise be fulfilled in real life, but you know what she did? She clung to hope and joy because he had made her a promise. She clung to hope and worship and joy, not because she had fully yet seen the promise, but because God had made to her a promise. Here's, that was the perspective, what she saw she was going to choose to do. And here's the second challenge for us. Cling to hope that is grounded in God's promise. Cling to hope that is grounded in God's promises. Now, there are a lot of things I want. There are a lot of things that will make me very happy. Some of those God has promised. God has promised it. But a lot of those, he hasn't promised. Will he give me those things? I don't know. He might, but he hasn't promised me those things. So this does not say cling to hope on the things that you wish God had promised you. Because that can lead you to disappointment. Because you're trying to hold God to a bargain that he's never made. What I'm trying to say is, but there are some things that God has said to you that you can cling to. Even if you don't see it yet, if God has promised it to you, you cling to hope in what he has promised to you. Here's what I would love to do. Just a real practical application. On the screen now, here are some lists 
of promises that God has made to you and to me for those of us who are New Testament Christians, right? On the screen. So if you got a phone, man, snap your picture. If you are the world's fastest writing with a bionic arm, you got about 37 seconds to write these down. Anybody here, I did a survey in the first, I like to sometimes take surveys to see when I'm getting old. Anybody here remember the bionic man or bionic woman? Ah, oh, there's a lot of old people with me. Any, anybody here never hear of the bionic man or bionic woman? Oh, oh, okay, well, we will pray for you because it's just Lee Majors, I'm just saying. Okay, here, here's what I'd love to do. If you're like, dude, I don't got a phone. If you're like, I don't really want to write down, then what we can also, on your way out on the little dealio stand, there are uh, these bookmarks for you, okay? So take a picture of that. Right, write them down, Do some. grab this thing on your way out, and here's what I would ask you to do. Here's what I invite you to do. This week, today, tomorrow, read through these. Read them. There's like, I don't know, eight or nine, ten or eleven. Just get your Bible, get a digital version, just read through them. Then what I do is once you've read through them, think about what's going on in your life today. Think about what you're feeling today. Maybe you're in a great place, and that's great. But if you're just in a little place where something's unsettled, which of these speak to what you're going through? And then what I would encourage you to do is this. Every morning this week till we get together again next Sunday, the first thing that you think about when you pop out of bed, the first thing to let you go through your mind is this promise that you're clinging to, that you're meditating about and thinking about throughout the week. You've read all of these. You've thought about where God has you in your story. You've picked one of these. And every morning, right, I love when Chris Raleigh made this challenge about two years ago. Maybe some of you have COVID fog and you forgot what he said, so I'm going to remind you, right? But this is great. Every morning before you get on Instagram, right, why is that that some of you roll out of bed and the first thing you do is like, I got to get to Instagram, ah! I'm just going to tell you something, right? The picture that your friends snapped to themselves with a perfect Santa hat and a little flannel at the Christmas tree farm, right? The picture of their little child sitting on Santa's lap. The picture of the Christmas cranberry cobbler that they made. It will still be there in 25 minutes. I promise you. It's in the Bible. It's not going to disappear, okay? You don't need to make that the first thing that you look at. You don't need to look at Fox News or CNN News or whatever news thing you get on your phone. You don't need to check your email 47 seconds out of getting out of bed. You know what would be good for this week? Man, let this run through your mind. This promise. And some of them are a little bit longer, but some of these are like 12 words. And maybe some of you, what you should not only do is remember them, just memorize it. Memorize it. And every morning from memory, first thing you do is boom. You recite the promise of God. I know that if you were in my white excursion with me, a hot chocolate going to look at Christmas lights, and Mariah Carey started singing, all I want for Christmas is you, you would sing every single word of it. You would. It might be horrible, but you would sing every single word. You know every, you know every single word of that song. You know every single word of Silent Night. Holy night. Right, we know words of songs. What if some of us committed to learning 15 words of Scripture? And then every morning this week, we just clung to that. So that's kind of an application. That's kind of a takeaway. Grab them, read through them, pick one this week, and then meditate through it. Elizabeth clung to a promise she hadn't yet seen. Right, Elizabeth had chosen this rut to walk of faithful obedience and trust. And then in her story, after she writes this song, there is a knock on the door. Somebody comes to visit Elizabeth, and to that visitor, Elizabeth kind of makes some choices about what to do. So who comes to visit Elizabeth? Well, let's keep reading in verse 39 and 40. 
This is what we read. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Mary, right, comes to visit Elizabeth. For those of you who this is the first time you've ever heard the Christmas story, Mary was Jesus' mama, okay? So yes, that Mary, she learns she's pregnant, and she, you can read about that story. And then the very first thing she does, right? Pop this map up here real quick, please, if you don't mean. She's hanging out here in Nazareth. Mary, she hears she's pregnant. She learns that. And the very first thing she says, oh, my gosh, I got to grab my bag. I got to grab my Nalgene. I got to go see Elizabeth. And so Mary takes this walk that's an 80 or 90-mile walk down to here to come see Elizabeth. Mary, at this time, is a 13-year-old, 14-year-old. 12-year-old. She's a middle school student. And this middle school student takes this walk to go see Elizabeth. We know later on that Elizabeth and Mary are related. They're relatives. We don't know the exact relationship, but, but she takes this walk, and Mary would have been a girl who's taking this walk to see her older relative whose life had gotten a huge curveball. A middle school girl who learns she's divinely pregnant. We know that her, she's engaged, and her fiancé, first thought pops in is he like, man, she's been cheating on me. i got to break off this relationship. We, we know that Mary would have faced all sorts of shame from people being like, man, old girl got pregnant without having a husband. Mary would not have expected, right, before even being married to have this baby. This was a curveball for Mary. She takes this three or four day walk to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is a lady who for decades has walked the path of having a curveball in her life. Elizabeth is a lady who for decades has had people say all sorts of things about her that are not true and are not fair. When this middle schooler was carrying the reality that people would shame her and judge her and say untrue rumors about her, she comes to a relative who's lived that story. And when Mary knocks on the door and Elizabeth opens it up, there's a few things Elizabeth doesn't do. Elizabeth doesn't say to Mary, Mary! What have you done? Like, how did you... Doesn't condemn her. Elizabeth doesn't shame her. Elizabeth doesn't say to her, Oh, Mary, look, thanks for filling me in and and what's going on. Look, I'm actually pregnant too, and I'm doing this big gender reveal party in a few weeks, and i got to bake this cake or do a balloon, and so it's been great to visit with you, but maybe you should just get on your way because I don't have enough time to deal with you. Mary does... There's no indication that Elizabeth says to Mary, Mary... This is going to be so hard for you. How are you going to do it? How are you going to make it? Instead, we see Elizabeth choosing to do something else. And she chooses to do this something else in two different ways. And and here's the first comment that shows her heart. She says this, uh, reading on, right? So Mary enters the house, verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. It's interesting, right? Besides Jesus, Elizabeth is probably the most quoted lady in the whole world. Because this statement right here, if you're part of the Catholic tradition, this is part of a liturgy that is repeatedly said, and it is plagiarizing Elizabeth's comments. Here is what, and that's not bad, I'm just saying Elizabeth has copied and pasted as part of the Catholic liturgy. She is the most quoted person probably besides Jesus in a Christian or in a religious tradition. And here's what's going on here in this first comment. 
In this culture, the significance of a mom was often linked with the significance of their child. And if a child had value and significance and prestige and power, that was often attributed to the mom, and the mom was looked highly. And what Elizabeth is saying to this 13-year-old who would have had these, and Mary had excitement, and she had joy, but did she have a lot of hard stuff to navigate? Yes. And what Elizabeth was saying to this 13-year-old is, Mary, you have the privilege of being the mom of the most significant baby that will ever walk the face of the earth. Mary, you have the honor of being the parent of the boy who will change everything. Mary, this is good. It's amazing. And after trying to encourage Mary with, with, the, with the weight and the joy of her role in this story, Mary Elizabeth then speaks directly to Mary about something, and she says this in verse 45. And blessed is she, this is Elizabeth talking about Mary, and blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Here's what Elizabeth's saying to Mary. And Mary, not only is your baby amazing, but Mary, good for you. Good for you. Because you believed what the angel told you. And you have faith. And you have trust. And Mary, that is good for you, for your character and what it shows. Do you know what Elizabeth chose to do in this moment? She chose to bring encouragement. She's prose to bring encouragement when this 13-year-old whose life was in a tailspin showed up at her door. And I love what a lady in the first service said that stuck out to her. She said, you know what else stuck out to me, Peter? I'm like, I don't, what? She said, from a woman's perspective, Elizabeth wasn't jealous. Elizabeth could have been jealous because Elizabeth wanted this baby her whole life, and a 13-year-old has a jealous, and Elizabeth could have been like, boy, and interestingly, the commentators, that is a point they bring up because it talks often about Elizabeth's humility and humbleness to Mary, right? But Elizabeth chooses to encourage. And here's the challenge for you and for me, something we can see from what Elizabeth's perspective was this, the third challenge, encourage others with truth. This week, would it be, I would love for all of you to commit to say, you know what, I'm going to think of one person this week, and I'm going to text them, and I'm going to, or email them, or I will drop them a handwritten note, or I will call them, and I will encourage them. I will encourage them, and, and for Christians, man, let's encourage each other with truth. So you see somebody, and you're like, man, Billy, you do an amazing job raising your kids. You are a great godly father training them up. Keep up the good work. Or you send a note to somebody else or email somebody else. Man, throughout the scripture, we see these words about being hospitable. You have the gift of hospitality. When you had me over for coffee last week, you made me feel so welcome. Man, thanks for exercising your gift to do that. Isn't it amazing sometimes when in the course of a day, somebody just looks you in the eye and affirms you and encourages you and thanks you? I mean, what if we can have a role this week in doing that in somebody else's story? This week, I would ask you to commit to encouraging somebody around you with truths that is linked with Scripture about how you see God working in their life or what you see God doing in their life and imagining the ripple effect that that could have. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. What we've talked about this morning and as we wind down is, man, we have a choice about how we're going to respond, and we're not going to let disappointment lead to disobedience. We're not going to lead brokenness, lead to bitterness, and we've got some resource to try to tell you about that, to help you with that. We've got some promises for us to cling to. 
And we've got this challenge of, man, be an encourager to somebody around you who's going through some stuff. And the amazing thing is how this story ends. And how, here's how the story ends. Elizabeth finally sees the fulfillment of this promise. Verse 57 says this, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. God said it was going to happen. God promised it was going to happen, and it happened. God fulfilled his promise to Elizabeth. And what's more significant than that, this baby who came was a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist went ahead of Jesus, and he's like, Hey, people, by the way, in a few months, this king is going to roll into town, and you all got to get ready for him. John the Baptist paved the way for that. And the birth of John the Baptist was not only a promise to Elizabeth, but it was the fulfilled promise for all of the Jewish people. Because the very last thing God said to the Jewish people in Malachi, before 400 years of silence, and we talked about it before, Jewish people, the Messiah is coming. But before that Messiah comes, there's going to be a baby born that's going to pave the way for the Messiah. And when John the Baptist was born in Luke 1:57, it was God keeping his promise to an old senior citizen and to the entire Jewish nation. God keeps his promises. And we're going to sing a song now, and we're going to end together saying, I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory. And the point of this song is this. It is an affirmation, and it was, is, we're clinging to this truth that God does keep his promise. And if God has promised you it, you will see it. If God has not promised it, but you want it, you may not see it. And this song is not suggesting that everything you want, you're going to see victory. And because you might not, but everything that God has promised, you will see him fulfill. And just one more comment about that. If God has promised it, you are going to see it. But the reality is that the question is not whether we're going to see it. The question is where are we going to see it? And some of us, we're going to experience that promise in this life on this earth. But for others of us, we're not going to experience that promise until we see Jesus face to face. It's not a question of whether we'll feel the promise and see it. We will. Every Christian who has ever prayed for healing will be healed. Every Christian who has ever prayed for healing will be healed. But not every Christian who has prayed for healing will be healed in this life. But man, the moment that they open up their eyes and see Jesus face to face, God in his mercy and grace will heal them. You will see the promises of God come true. It's not an issue of whether you will. It's just an issue of when you will. And so what we're going to do is we're going to end our time just affirming that as we sing together. I'd ask you to stand up, I'll pray, and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for these truths from your word this morning. Thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. Thank you that, that we can depend deeply upon what you have promised, and even in the hardest times, your character and who you are and your goodness and your promise can still give us the grounds to stand upon to worship even if we do it weakly and insufficiently. And I pray this morning, Father, that for people who are going through hard times or that's coming around the corner, that Elizabeth's story you will use in a divine way to bring some encouragement to them and to help them keeping pressing on, chasing after you. Thank you that you sent Jesus, the Son, to be where we are. Thank you that you've rescued us, and thank you that you adore us. Amen.